Amen. I like that phrase, society of diversion and distraction. I don't know if you feel that. I feel that all the time. It means so much to just stand here and just listen to y'all singing those truths that so often I'm distracted from. So thank you for doing that. My name is Jonathan, I'm the executive pastor here. I'm really glad you're with us. Uh, I love to remind you of some truths at the beginning of every message, uh, and it's just this, that the truest and the most important thing about you, no matter what, is this. You were created in the image of God, and nothing will ever change that, and you are deeply loved by God, and nothing will ever change that. We like to start there. I know uh, for all of us, we experience God's love a lot of times through His grace. Uh, the definition I love of grace is just this, that God doesn't give us what we deserve. It's not that He doesn't know. He knows exactly what we deserve. But instead of that, He gives us Jesus, which is far better than we could ever deserve. And it's kind of this disorienting reality of grace. And in that context, God begins to transform us into who we were always intended to be. We started a series last week uh, called Grace People, and uh, we were talking about conflict a lot last week, but the idea for the big series is just this, that the missing ingredient in a lot of our relationships is that grace, the grace that God has for us, the grace we need to have for other people, and what really makes relationships thrive and what makes us connect well with others is when we are able to give people something other than what they deserve. To me, it seems like if there's any place you could go, like in all the earth, and you could experience that sort of grace, then it would be among the people of a God of grace. That's what we are, the people of a God of grace. And so we're just learning uh, about this and we're leaning into this together. How do we begin to embody the grace of the God whom we love? That's what the series is about. Today, I want to talk about something that I think it just has to happen before we're ever really going to be able to give other people grace. I mean, we might be able to try, but to really give grace from our hearts to other people and give them something other than what they deserve, this one thing has to happen. Um, I don't know if you've noticed this about grace, but grace is a little offensive, isn't it? It's it, like we start talking about giving people something other than what they deserve, and it makes me nervous. I think of all the exceptions and the objections where grace is a bad idea and we shouldn't give grace. Like, for example, if someone is going five miles an hour under the speed limit in the left lane, they do not need grace. They need motivation at that point, right? They, they need you to see how close you can get to their bumper so that they'll speed up or get over. I mean, even Jesus is like, look at this guy, you know? <laughs> <laughs> He's probably not. That's not. <laughs> I take that back. Uh, or maybe like when we talk about grace and not giving people what they deserve, your mind goes a little bit more globally. You start thinking about society. What about justice, you might say? I mean, it would never work as a law enforcement strategy, would it? This idea of not giving people what they deserve. I am so thankful that our legal system gives people what they deserve because society needs justice or it would crumble. Or maybe you think about an exception or an objection of someone in your life who has betrayed you, who's hurt you deeply, or someone maybe who has rejected you. And the idea 
that you would not pay them back, but you would continue to engage with them with grace, continue to be present with them, loving them after they have hurt you, it just seems impossible to you. And you know, there's no getting around this fact that there, there's this aspect of grace that is offensive. And at times it feels unwise to us. Yet there is this unavoidable reality that God seems intent on growing our capacity to have grace for others. And what that means is growing our capacity to give people things better than what they deserve. He wants that to be a defining attribute of his people, of the people of a God of grace. He wants us to embody that. Yet we fill our mind with many exceptions and objections to that idea. I, I'm not going to deal with all of those today for two reasons. One is because it's impossible. The other one is because I think the faith journey, you just have to do some of that wrestling with God. Should I give grace in this situation or shouldn't I? That's something we have to all do. Um, what I want to talk about is this. There is something that has to happen first. And this is something, if it doesn't happen, we will always struggle to give grace. But when it happens, it will begin to change the way that we view the world around us. And it's not going to solve all of those objections and those exceptions that fill our mind, but it is going to change the way we view them. And we may even find ourselves learning to prefer grace with other people, even those people who hurt us deeply. See, when this thing happens, something shifts in us. Um, and it doesn't mean that grace is instantly easy and wise, but it does mean that there's a different orientation of our heart that's drawn towards grace. And that's what I want to talk about today. But I realize this, it, I'm kind of tackling a big concept. Um, and it's one of those things that I think it could, if we let it, be like earth shattering to some of our relationships and just our patterns of life. This could, has the potential to be like a game changer if we allow it to be. And so I thought we'd just pause right at the beginning, and I'd just give you a little bit of space to prepare your heart, to kind of go to God and say, hey, God, uh, I, you may want to say something to me today. I may not want to hear it, so, but I'm open to it, so say it. Um, would you just take a second, and just with you and God, just prepare your heart and try to create space for something that he may want to say to you today. Let's go to God. We don't always do this, Lord, but we, we come to you just with the humility that recognizes that what you may say to us may not be exactly what we want to hear. But God, we're open to it, and we just ask that you would soften our hearts, get past our defenses, and speak truth to us that would change us. We invite that, Lord. Amen. Have you ever just uh, read a sentence that left you undone? I was recently reading an article that Roland gave me. He's always, he's got all sorts of fascinating things to read, and he sent me something uh, to read, and I was reading it, and in the middle of this article, I read this line that stopped me in my tracks. Here's what I read. It says, if we want other people to give us something that only God can give, we become a demon. Now, obviously, I, I think the author is using kind of arresting language. It's a little bit explosive. We become a demon. I think, though, what he's trying to do is to wake us up 
to something that we all tend to do, but it can be intensely oppressive to other people in our, in our life. Before I tell you what left me undone about this, let me just give you some context. This is an article written about community by a guy named Henry Nowen, um, and he's talking about what makes community possible and what makes it impossible, what just wrecks the relationships that we long for with each other. Er, Earlier before this, he says this, if we do not know that we are the beloved sons and daughters of God, we're going to expect someone in the community to make us feel that way. They cannot. We'll expect someone to give us that perfect unconditional love, but community is not loneliness grabbing onto loneliness. I'm so lonely, you're so lonely, but it's solitude grabbing onto solitude. I am the beloved, you are the beloved. Together we can build a home. Read this again. Go back to the other slide. I, Read this again. There is something about this. I think he is onto something that wrecks our relationships day in, day out, all the time. What left me undone reading this uh, train of thought here was I just, I had this realization personally. It was one of those epiphanous moments where I felt like God spoke to me that often in my relationships, the core of my frustrations with the other person, whoever that may be, my, my inability to give grace, the feeling that I need to pay them back for what they've done to me, that sort of thing, it was precisely because I was mad that they were incapable of loving me in ways that only God can. If I'm honest, I, you know, I want people to love me really well. I want people uh, to be there for me and love me even when I'm horrible. Like, even when I'm hard to love, I want them to love me. I want their affection for me to be without condition, always, without caveat. I want them to never disappoint me. Is that too much to ask? I want them to never hurt me. That is the love that I want. And I had this realization that in so many of my relationships, I bring these God-sized expectations to human-sized people, and that's oppressive to them. Instead of bringing my needs for perfect love to God who loves us perfectly, loves us unconditionally, I bring them to humans who are just as broken as I am, and then when they fail, I manage to always be surprised, disappointed, and resentful of them. Have you ever noticed this dynamic? Um, in your relationships, that what you really want from your friends, you know, from your wife, from your husband, from your kids, from your church, what you really want is that they just love you unconditionally. And when you don't receive that, you start to get a little prickly and demanding. And I think the hard truth that I'm discovering is this, until we receive the love from God that only He can give, we will never prefer grace in our relationships because we'll constantly be trying to get something from other people, something that only God can give us. There are things that only God can give you, like unconditional love. You cannot get that from any other person. Only God can give you that. And uh, when we are trying to get that from other people, grace suddenly seems impossible and unwise. Now you may say, hey, that's all fine and good, but uh, where is this in the Bible? Well, this is actually all over the Bible. 
if you know what to look for. Um, consider, for example, like the Ten Commandments. Consider the first commandment. So God rescues these people out of slavery. He brings them to this mountain, and it's like his big moment to say to them, like the top ten things that they need to be thinking about. And the first commandment, I, I think, is relevant that it was first. This is the first thing that he says to them. Listen to this from Exodus 20. It says, And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, a lot of times we read, read that through the lens of history and we're like, well, they were idol worshipers and so he's speaking against idol worship. But the word idol is not actually in there. At its core, the first commandment is this. It's one that says, do not try to get things from uh, things that are not God that only God can give you. Only get those things from God that God can give. It's a concept that's also in uh, something called the Shema. You may have heard of the Shema before. It's a Hebrew word for hear, and it refers to this prayer that's in the book of Deuteronomy. And in Jesus' day, observant Jews would have prayed this prayer in the morning and in the evening of literally every day of their lives. And Jesus quotes it when someone asks him, hey, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus says in Mark 12, he says, the most important one is this. And then he quotes the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And it's really important that Jesus didn't just start with the word love. He didn't say, well, here's the command, you should love God. But he actually starts at the beginning. He says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one God. There is only one God. He is the only God. And what he's saying there is this, the substitutes that you may find for God, they are not God. They cannot do for you the things that only God can do. Or consider this. There's a theme in the Old Testament um, that, that I've always kind of wrestled with, this ad adjective that is always attributed to God. You can find it all over the place, but consider Exodus 34. Um, it says, Do not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. And the jealousy of God is kind of a weird thing to think about. If you believe that God is like almighty and all-powerful and he needs nothing from us, well, why is he jealous? Well, God's jealousy is not because he's somehow insecure or he's somehow intimidated if we give our affection to anything else. His, his jealousy is because he knows that when we bring our God-sized needs to lesser things, we lose every time. And there's this arc of Scripture from the first verse to the last that, that says this truth that I would just state this way. Nothing else on all the earth can carry the weight of God in our lives except God. That's what the Bible teaches, that, that we long for love, we long for perfect love, we long for a love full of grace, a love that perseveres, a love that heals our broken places. We long for that because the Bible tells us we were intended for that. And we live with this longing for this real love, and without even thinking, we take that longing to different people, to different things, and we kind of all tend to go through the same discovery process. I think it starts with our family of origin. Usually it starts there. We, we're like born into a family, and at some point we look around at those people and we're like, what is their problem? Why can't they love me the way that I need to be loved? What is wrong with you people? And we, we say, well, you know what? I don't need you. I'm going to go make my own family. I'm going to find friends 
That's the answer. Friends are the family you choose. And I'm going to find these people, and they're going to love me so good, and that longing is finally going to be met in my heart. And then we think, gosh, my friends suck. (laughs) They're just as bad as my family. They let me down all the time. I need new friends. Or better yet, you know what I need? I need to get married. If I get married, I will finally find the unconditional love that I've always been looking for, the love like Jesus. And we get married, and we, we're like, man, I, I was hoping to marry someone like Jesus. I'm not even sure I got one of the disciples. <laughs> not you, baby. It's not, yeah. I'm talking about those people. Not you all, but, you know. This worked better in the first service. (laughs) So it's not marriage. Maybe it's my career. Maybe that'll meet those longings that I have. Nope. Maybe it's church. Church seems like a good thing. They talk about God's love all the time. Maybe that'll meet those longings that I have. Nope. You know, here's the thing. If I can't find somebody to love me in the way that I need to be loved, maybe I'll just make a person. I should have kids. Then I'll finally find the unconditional love that I've always been looking for. And everyone with kids is laughing because you know (laughs) that's not part of the deal. Um, And we take this longing for love to all of these different places. And meanwhile, down through the ages, from literally thousands of years ago, God looks at people and says, listen, you should have no other God but me. They've been doing this for all time. We've been doing this, taking these longings to other things. And God says, none of those other things will be able to be for you the love you long for. You know, there is something almost demonic about constantly bringing these God-sized expectations, these God-sized longings to human-sized people again and again, uh, and, and they just, they cannot love us the way that God does. They can't. Let me give you an example of how this plays out in relationship. I'm a verbal processor, which means I, uh, the longer I talk, the clearer things become sometimes, um, but I usually have a lot of words to get out before I really understand like, here's what I think, here's what I feel, all that sort of stuff. All right, I don't know if any of y'all can relate to that, but here's how it plays out in my marriage. Um, when I'm struggling with something, thinking about something, wrestling with an issue, I want to talk it out. And the more complex the issue, the longer it takes me to talk it out. And my wife, bless her heart, she listens so graciously to me, uh, but sometimes, understandably so, she'll just like tap out because like she's a human woman and we have our limits, right? It's like that's enough words. And occasionally she's even said to me, hey, it feels like I don't really need to be here for this. Maybe you could just keep talking. I'll go do something else. I'll come back. I'll just pick up wherever you are. And, <laughs> and I, what happens to me? I usually get all offended at that point, right? If she really loved, if she really loved me, I mean, if she really loved me, uh, she would want to hear every word. Uh, she would just <laughs> long to know every word that falls from my lips with joy and just welcoming and kindness and a smile on her face if she really loved me, which is a crazy expectation to put on another person, right? 
almost demonic. Do you know who actually has an unconditional, unlimited capacity to listen to us? God, right? He actually invites us to pour our hearts out to him through prayer, through journaling, whatever it may be. He gives us the Holy Spirit to counsel us because sometimes we struggle to understand life and we need to process it. He gives us Jesus so that we can approach him without fear, so that we can literally say whatever to him, to, we want to him and he's not going to smite us dead because we crossed some line. And he invites us to pour out our heart to him whenever we want to. And yet, despite all that God has made available to me, I take this need to a human and, and get mad when she cannot be God. This is why, down through the ages, from a thousand years ago, God said, let, let me start you here. You should have no other God but me. Nobody else can do it. I am the only one. This is so central to our relationships. Now, and says this later in the article. He says, forgiveness and celebration are what make community. Forgiveness is to allow the other person to not be God. Forgiveness says, I know you love me, but you don't have to love me unconditionally because no human being can do that. That sort of forgiveness, this, hey, I, I forgive you for not being God, it is living out the first commandment. Don't think we're off the hook because we don't bow down at idols. That's not what the first commandment is about. It is about this reorientation where only God is God to you. And it is walking in that sort of forgiveness that you don't have to be God to me. And when we start believing that we are deeply loved by him, we start to gravitate towards forgiveness and grace. But if we don't receive it, we will never give it because we'll still be looking for it. But when, when we've been loved by God, we begin to be convinced that we are the beloved of God. And then not only do we find that we're able to give people something other than what they deserve, we'll find that we actually are gravitating towards that way of life whenever possible, giving people more than what they deserve. Let me just close with a, a picture of this from the New Testament. Um, I want you to think about Jesus. Uh, if you have a Bible, turn to John 13. Jesus, of course, is a picture of someone um, who was convinced that God loved him fully, right? And he seemed to have no, no need whatsoever to force other people to love him well. Um, and I think that was because he was so rooted in his identity as the beloved of God that it empowered him to not give people what they deserve, but to actually give them grace. And one of my favorite pictures of that is in John 13. Um, Jesus, he's with his disciples in the upper room. This is actually the, the night before he's going to be crucified. And he, of course, knows what's going to happen to him. Yet he has this one night with his friends, and, and here's what happens. John 13. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and that he was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, first of all, those of you who love justice, 
uh, all of us on some level, I hope, but it's clearly nothing about this scene is justice, right? There's no justice in this room this night. It was pure grace because if we start asking the question, what did the people here deserve? It's obvious. Judas deserved to be killed, right? The disciples, they deserved nothing. They'd been riding Jesus' coattails for a while now. Jesus deserved love and adoration and worship, right? But here's what happens when grace people walk into a room. Not only does no one get what they deserve, but everyone gets better than what they deserve. So Judas deserved punishment, and what he got was this astounding love. The disciples deserved nothing, but what they got was they got elevated. And Jesus deserved worship, but what he got was dirty. I think there's something right in the middle of that passage that we, it's easy to skip over, but I think it makes the whole thing make sense. Look at verse 3 again. It says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he'd come from God and that he was returning to God. So he knew these two things, right? He knew this, that God had given him total authority. He knew who he was, whether anyone else in the room acknowledged it or not. He knew that God had given him this authority, and so this is what he decided to do. But he also knew this, that he was forever and eternally connected to God in a loving relationship. He knew he came from God. He knew he was returning to God. And so why didn't Jesus demand that these men respect his authority, that they worship him in love? Well, I think the answer is as simple as this, that Jesus had already gotten those things from his father, so he wasn't looking to his earthly relationships to get them. He was freed from that. He was keeping the first commandment, and it empowered in his life grace. That's why he's not upset with his friends, and he's able to give them what they didn't deserve. He, he explains it at the end of this. Look at verse 12. It says, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes, and he returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. And they didn't understand. And this is one of those precious moments where Jesus is like, let me explain it. Here's what's happening. Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, rightly so. That is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I've done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do him. And basically what he's saying is, listen, your job is to give people things they don't deserve. That's what I'm doing for you. That's what I want you to do for others. Your job is not to get them to love you in the way you need to be loved. They can't do it anyway. Only God can do it. They, they can give you like this broken, flawed human love, but that's all they have to give. Your job is to receive love from God, to live in this identity that you are the beloved of God so that you can give people love that they don't deserve. And if you think it meant something to them that night, just wait till the next day when they realize Jesus knew Judas was going to betray him and he still did this for him. He still gave him this love. You know, there is something so powerful, and I'm sure you've met people like this, about someone who is convinced to their core that God loves them. There's something so different about someone who is convinced that they're the beloved of God. There is a grace that, that, that enables, that, that reminds us of Jesus. 
You know, I, I don't totally know what all to do with all of this stuff, but as I was just meditating on this, I, four things kind of stuck into my head. Um, th- these are four suggestions. I wouldn't say try all of these, just latch on maybe to one that God might be saying to you. Here's one thing we can do with this. We can fire the fake gods in our life, like fire them, like release them. They can't do the job anyway. They're not God. They're just human. This first commandment, the Shema, the Ark of Scripture, it was not given to us because God is so mad about idols. It was given to us for our protection. It was given to us because when we try to get things from people that they cannot give us and only God can, like we become this caricature of love, this demonic, oppressive thing. And it's a worthwhile exercise to just identify, hey, who have I put in the place of God in my life? And if you're married, let me help you. It's your spouse. It is absolutely your spouse. The question is not how do you do this, or or, I'm sorry, the question is not if you do this, the question is how do you do this to your spouse? There's no one else, married people, that we tend to put on the throne of God more frequently than our spouse in our lives. My counselor always says to me, hey, you should fire Becky from being God and let God play that role. We do this in a lot of relationships. We should just release people from playing the role of God in our lives so that God himself can play the role. Here's the second thing we can do with this. I think we need to identify the needs that we keep bringing to people or things. We all have these needs, and we need to be cognizant of what they are. We keep bringing them to situations. Maybe it's like me, you have a need to process stuff, or maybe you have a need for respect or a need for affection. Maybe your need is affirmation or safety. Whatever it is, it is helpful to understand, hey, this is the thing inside of me that makes me keep grabbing on to these false gods. And when we identify those longings that, that make us try to get others to, to meet them, then we can learn to take those longings to God so that he can begin to meet them in us. But we have to know what they are first. Identify those needs. Here's a third thing we can do with this. Forgive someone in your life for not being God. Forgiveness says, I know you love me, but you don't have to love me unconditionally because no human being can do that. You know, I bet you have people that they have loved you in ways that are woefully inadequate. That hurts. We all have that, everyone in this room. Those people need your forgiveness. They don't deserve your forgiveness. They never will. But those people need your forgiveness. And when you forgive them for not being God, you will find that you're actually able to receive their broken human love for what it is. Forgive someone in your life for not being God this week. Here's the last thing. Maybe press into God's love for you. Jesus knew, Jesus knew what God had given him, who he was, And he knew how loved he was. And there's this crazy kind of counterintuitive truth that the depth of your relationships on earth, like your capacity to have grace for others and to really connect in relationships on earth, it will grow in direct correlation to your understanding of God's love for you. There's something about receiving that love from God that quiets something in us and it allows us to connect on a real level in love with others. Now in his right, two lonely people do not form a very good relationship. 
Loneliness, grabbing onto loneliness, never feels like love. But two people who are secure in God's love, they can make a home. And the best thing we can do to grow in our relationships with each other is to become secure in God's love for us. We are the people of a God of grace. And it is that experience with God, His grace, that shapes our ability to embody it for others. Uh, let's put these four things up on the screen together there. Um, I, like I said, just pick one. What is God pushing you towards or drawing you towards today? Maybe you want to use our prayer wall while we're worshiping here. You could write something out. You could tell someone they're fired and roll it up and put it in the prayer wall. They don't ever have to read it. Where is God leading you? Let me ask, are you struggling to give grace? Are you just generally giving, yourself, giving others what they deserve? Or is that, there that one person who is like, I just can't seem to give them grace? It's just that one person. Do you have relationships that are struggling? I hope, I hope you don't feel alone. Uh, that is all of us. I, th uh, this is the reality. Relationships with humans, they're disappointing sometimes. They're never the love that ultimately we were intended for and that we long for. That's only with God. And for us as the people of a God of grace, the answer is not just to try harder to make those relationships great. Willpower is not the issue. But something is unlocked for us when we are able to stop expecting others to meet needs that only God can meet. And we just allow him to love us. And we put no other God before him. And as he meets our needs for love, we begin to be free to become grace people. Amen. Um, what happens around here every week is that whoever's teaching uh, sends their notes out to a few of us, and, and we discuss it. And I was reading Jonathan's notes as he was uh, preparing this morning. And he had that phrase in there a few times, people of a God of grace. And it just, uh, it really stuck with me. And, um, and the whole message affected me too, because I so often, um, you know, create uh, Kitty as my God or uh, some other relationship or something. And, or I try to give grace in my own strength. I'm a person of grace instead of being a person of a God of grace. and uh, So some words came to mind, and I jotted them down and put some music with it, and um, we thought it uh, might be an idea to just sing this over you. And uh, so as you think about what Jonathan said, um, and maybe there are places in your life uh, where you need to release someone from being a God in your life, maybe it's your spouse, um, and you rely on God for grace, or maybe you give, need to give that grace through God to someone else. So I just want to sing this over you and um, let you think about uh, the lyrics, the lyrics that affected me.
living life at you You've always taken me just like I am Needing of your grace Yet an unforgiving just can't be in the presence of your majesty I forget turn and run away Sometimes I feel I'm in a daze from running in this human race It seems there's no more goodness I can was anywhere a grace like that could be found it's among the people of a God of grace I think upon cross on Calvary The pain you took from them It's the pain that set me free When I just feel that pain from people around me How could you love them? How could you love me? Sweet, I just can't be the presence of your majesty. I forget of turn and run away. Sometimes I feel I'm in a daze from running in this human race. It seems there's no more goodness I can. Let's stand together and sing that. 